Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Thursday, the 16th of December today, and this will be our last episode for 2021. I'm really chuffed to say that the podcast has continued to grow in listenership. So thanks to you all for continuing to tune in and welcome to our new listeners. Oh, look, there's no need for any five-star reviews or anything, but we are, of course, grateful for recommendations to friends and colleagues. Word of mouth is how we want to be more known. But five-star reviews are also okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, we have a, a busy news schedule today. We'll begin with the Biden administration, both the Summit for Democracy and the formation of a an Indo-Pacific strategy. Next, we'll cover the first visit by a foreign leader to Australia in a very long time. That is the South Korean President Moon Jae-in. Third is the confirmation that Australia and several other countries will participate in a diplomatic boycott of sorts of the Beijing Olympics. And to wrap up, we're going to consider the question of communicating Australian foreign policy. But we're going to begin with the US and President Biden hosting a summit for democracy on the 9th and 10th of December. Biden's mantra is, quote, democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to defend it, fight for it, strengthen it, renew it. The summit had three areas of focus. One, defending against authoritarianism. Two, addressing and fighting corruption. And three, promoting respect for human rights. Unfortunately, if perhaps not surprisingly, The headlines that I have seen dominate press coverage have, with one exception that I'll come to shortly, they've highlighted the summit's flaws. Prior, the focus was on the administration's invitation list, in which, in the words of The Economist, quote, followed its own interests over objective measures. That's objective measures of democracy, of course. Then, at the summit itself, the video feed of Taiwan's digital minister, Audrey Tang, was temporarily cut with a Reuters report citing two sources that this had come at the behest of the White House. Tang had shared her screen on this virtual meeting, displaying a map that showed Taiwan as a different colour to Beijing, although it wasn't a geographic map, it was one denoting civil rights freedoms. Now, both the US and Taiwanese sides claimed it was a technical glitch, but Hawks pounced, arguing that this was proof that the administration was being too deferential and too sensitive towards Beijing. Before we discuss this, Alan, I I want to refer listeners to episode 77 of the podcast, where you and I did a bit of a deep dive on the topic of democracy as an organizing principle for foreign policy. So today, and, and with the benefit of hindsight, let me just ask you whether you saw the summit as being a net positive or net negative. A net positive because it was an election promise of Biden's, even though over the course of the campaign, he changed it sensibly from a summit of democracies to a summit for democracy. Look, if it hadn't been held, the reputational consequences for Biden and the US would have been real. It brought a good selection of people from civil society over the course of two or three days, I think. And they covered issues like human rights and elections and independent media, corruption. 
so far as I can see, there wasn't actually all that much summit to it. It wasn't clear, but there seemed to be a leader's plenary which lasted an hour. And if the PM's own published remarks to that are anything to go by, how can I put this kindly? It won't have been a galvanizing experience. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, I read the PM's speech on his website and and galvanizing is not a word that I would use for it, that's for sure. But look, overall, I agree. I think it was a net positive. Putting aside the optics, there is a concrete problem here. The erosion of democracy from within and the rise of authoritarianism from without. And that's being seen as a legitimate alternative by many. So just explicitly identifying the problem is important. But of course, what can you do about it? The US itself has lost so much credibility as a democracy. And given its domestic constraints, its relative power is declining as well. So I think that it can't lead unilaterally on these issues. And Biden has correctly contrasted himself with Trump with an emphasis on diplomacy and multilateralism as anchors to US foreign policy. So really, this fits into that mold. It's an example of those principles in action. It's just a first step, uh, but it's a needed one. Get people talking about it, raise the profile of these issues. There will be a second summit about a year from now, apparently, which will hopefully generate some pressure on the participating governments to offer up some deliverable to show what they've done. Again, only mild, but again, I think it's something. It's a step in the right direction. And of course, as we've mentioned, it, it was far from perfect. US interests did play too much of a role in the invitations and arguably also in the rhetoric. But personally, I, you know, I see merit in trying to be as inclusive as possible. I'm less troubled by the inevitable contradictions of what is a democracy. Because I think, as we've discussed many times, foreign policy involves living with those contradictions. And I think also being a bit fraught and messy in public is kind of the point, right? This is how open democratic systems operate. It's not the smooth, stage-managed authoritarian style either. Now, Alan, I did mention, though, there was one exception to the negative press coverage, arguably anyway, and that was the reaction of China. I saw a fascinating statistic from the Alliance for Securing Democracies Hamilton 2.0 dashboard, which showed that Chinese state media and diplomats on Twitter have used or did use the term democracy and summit or related keywords uh, over 1,000 times in the week around the summit, four times as much as they'd mentioned COVID and twice as much as they'd mentioned the Olympics. It seems you know, Beijing was angry about the summit and even released a white paper titled China, Democracy That Works, and a report titled The State of Democracy in the United States, you know, around the event. And you can imagine what both of those say. You don't need to just imagine it because I don't know if you saw it, but the Chinese Chargé d'Affaires here had an op-ed in the Canberra Times oh, during okay. the week defending China's position as a democracy. So they're certainly getting it out there. That's interesting. Well, I mean, Marika Olberg and Bonnie Glazer of the German Marshall Fund argued in foreign policy that the summit was irritating to Beijing because it, quote, threatens to undermine China's narrative by portraying the West and the US in particular as resilient, end quote. And I want to pair that with a, a recent appearance by Jude Blanchett of CSIS on the ANU's National Security Podcast run by the National Security College, where he quotes Xi Jinping's book, Governance of China, where she writes, quote, 
a well-founded system is the biggest strength a country has, and competition in terms of system is the most essential rivalry between countries, end quote. So, Alan, both the US and China and the government here in Australia do perceive, it seems, there to be a competition of systems. Yeah, back in episode 77 that I've already mentioned, you made clear that you didn't think democracy promotion fits well within an effective foreign policy and that there is an obvious need to cooperate with non-democracies on many issues. So given that, do you think there can be any room for a competition of systems type frame in an effective foreign policy? Let me defend myself first. I don't I don't think I've ever claimed that democracy promotion doesn't have a role in the foreign policy of a government like ours. We are doing it effectively in Solomon Islands at the moment, for example. And my point is not that forms of government don't matter or that it's not going to be easier for us to deal with countries whose systems are more like our own. But I do think that a binary democracy authoritarian division of the world is just idiotic. As we saw with the invitees to this summit, we all exist across a broad spectrum and knowing where to draw the line between one system and another is literally impossible. You just have to look at the way Freedom House or the Economist Intelligence Unit's democracy index rate countries to see how difficult that is. It's a good thing for us to value the democratic elements of our own system and to argue the case where we can do it without hypocrisy that others should follow us. But it's an equally good thing for us to understand that the forms of government we each adopt will be different in response to the underlying conditions in, uh, say, South Africa and Bangladesh and Fiji. So I don't quite agree with you that China does see a competition of systems. It certainly sees a competition of states and a competition in the effectiveness of those states. But although Jude Blanchett is one of the experts I really listen to on China and I admire his work a lot, my sense is that the system she is talking about is not of the broader, you know, world division we saw during the Cold War or even the authoritarian democracy contest many of our commentators currently see, but something that's more specific and endogenous to each country, though, you know, you'd have to speak Mandarin to know know whether that was right or not. Yeah, like we're obviously not going to be debating Pekingology on this podcast. So let me try to come at this another way. The Lowy Poll asks Australians whether democracy is preferable to any other form of government. And in November of 2020, I think it was 71% agreed with that statement, which was a high and that's good. But in the 18 to 29 bracket, it was only 61%. And I would assume these sentiments are even weaker in the US in large part to Trumpism, but not only because of Trump. And moreover, parts of the American right in particular have embraced, for example, Viktor Orban's model of illiberal democracy in Hungary as one worthy of emulation. So at the very least, there is a competition of systems going on within democracies, albeit of varying intensities across countries. And part of waging that battle inevitably is drawing attention to the downsides of non-democracies. And if we assume that the first audience for everything Biden does is domestic, 
that would apply to the Summit for Democracies as well. So that same logic then, a, a domestic competition of systems, I think, can apply to authoritarian regimes, as we've discussed many times. I mean, they want to hold on to power as well. They want to maintain their system. And of course, in that context, you'd point to something like the chaotic absurdity of the Trump presidency and various rights and other forms of domestic instability that have come with it, as well as all the graft and so forth. You'd highlight that to your people and say, why on earth would you want this? Now then, to bring this into the China context, if you have the two most powerful states who not only have opposing models of governance, but are both facing internal pressure on those models, then to me, an international competition of systems is almost structurally inevitable. The pro-democracy, anti-authoritarian rhetoric we're seeing in the United States and elsewhere right now is as much about the internal battles that democratic systems are facing as it is external. And I think the same applies to China. You know, just another manifestation, I suppose, of the fact that everything internal is external and vice versa. Let's let's stay with the US for a moment more. On Tuesday of just this week, Secretary of State Tony Blinken delivered a speech in Jakarta touting a new Indo-Pacific strategy. And we've been waiting for this really all year. He described it as having five core elements. One, advancing a free and open Indo-Pacific. Two, forging stronger connections within and beyond the region. Three, promoting broad-based prosperity. Four, building a more resilient Indo-Pacific. And five, bolstering Indo-Pacific security. Now, Alan, my Twitter feed, at least, was mostly quite critical of the speech and the strategy, given we've been waiting all year for it. There don't seem to be any big policy changes. It's basically more of the same. But can I get a quick reaction from you? For someone outside the Twitterverse, what what was interesting was how little anyone else noticed. I think that's because there wasn't much new in Blinken's strategy. It essentially just described current policy and what the US is currently doing in the region. But the most interesting part for me chimed very closely with something you'd said on this podcast recently. In describing how the US will bolster Indo-Pacific security, Blinken says that the United States will adopt what he calls an integrated deterrence. I hadn't heard that expression before that, maybe because I haven't been reading the literature, but it was new to me. And he said that was something that wove together more closely all our instruments of national power with those of our allies and partners. And he cites AUKUS as a prime example because, I'm quoting him again, it will advance our strategic interests, uphold international rules-based order and promote peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Now, it would have been really interesting to hear such an articulation of the agreement from an Australian policymaker, but of course we haven't because there haven't been any such statements. And we'll be coming to that point a bit later in the podcast, Alan. My take on Blinken's speech and what I assume will come later in a document form beyond the fact sheet that was released by the State Department is that it represents incrementalism above all else. The step change we saw was the change in administration. And in many ways, that was a reversion to a quote-unquote normal foreign policy These sentiments mostly could have been written and delivered back in February and March um, and released with the interim national security strategic guidance, which we discussed previously. That was a far more substantive document, I think. And so this is just, to me, further confirmation of how hemmed in the White House is by domestic politics and declining relative power. But I don't think anybody should be surprised 
strikingly bold strategic policy is just not in this administration's DNA and no one should have expected it. If anyone listening, by the way, disagrees and did expect more, please let me know what your model of US politics is such that, you know, a bolder policy would have been conceivable. And it's not like the Biden team has done nothing in the first 12 months, but what they have done has been more modest or maybe extremely long-term like AUKUS and naturally bounded by the emphasis on multilateralism and diplomacy. By far the boldest thing they've done, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, is sort of by definition not forward-leaning, right? And I'm really one myself to want bold action since you're as likely to get an action like Trump's in withdrawing, for example, from the Iran nuclear deal as you are something positive. And we're seeing every week, it seems, how much of an error that nuclear withdrawal was. And Biden's foreign policy is still a break from the past, of course, certainly from Trump in some aspects. But where it's similar to Trump, it's a break from Obama. So what we're seeing is an incremental, but as we've discussed many times, a fundamental reorientation of American foreign policy to recognise or in recognition of the changing strategic and security environment, but equally Washington's diminishing capacity to shape it, unilaterally at least. You know, perhaps I can summarise it as this. Welcome to multipolarity. A big claim, Darren. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wait wait for the response to that one. I I was surprised that you went as far as that. That's good. I encourage you. We're obviously not at a unipolar moment anymore. What would be the opposing claim that it's bipolar that it's no no it's just it's just something that the chinese are saying relentlessly at the moment in their description of the world i think that they are but they're also often tried to claim bipolarity right that there is a sort of a special elevation of the u.s and china by themselves which is something the u.s is sort assiduously to avoid sort of the, the new type of great power relations type framing But if someone thinks that the US has diminished power and and that it is not constrained domestically, which is sort of my point, then we can have that debate. I think the facts speak for themselves at this point. Let's move on. This week, South Korea's President Moon Jae-in took the honour of being the first foreign leader to visit Australia since the pandemic-induced border closures. The visit coincided with the 60th anniversary of diplomatic relations and saw the elevation of the relationship to the status of comprehensive strategic partnership. The headline-grabbing event, I guess, was a $1 billion contract to purchase howitzers and resupply vehicles with the Korean defence manufacturer Hanwha, believed to be the largest ever military deal with an Asian nation. Hanwha is also in the running for a much larger $30 billion contract to build new infantry fighting vehicles. In the joint press conference, the two leaders emphasised their countries are like-minded democracies. While President Moon suggested Seoul is broadly comfortable with the August agreement, but that there are other policy differences, such as on a Winter Olympic boycott that we'll talk about shortly. Friend of the podcast, Stephen Jedgett, had a lovely piece of analysis for the ABC in which he asked whether Moon's visit was more about geopolitics or more about commerce, and there are diverging views on this. What did you think, Alan? What was important about this visit? It was important that the Korean president chose to come here, even if it was late in his term. And I think it shows that Seoul clearly believes that the relationship can deliver greater benefits to both sides. And I believe that's right. If you look at the sort of stump speech of Australian leaders going to South Korea over the past 
30 years, they've consistently emphasized the similarities in the sizes of our economies, our common alliances with the United States, our joint interest as middle powers in the structures of the multilateral system, and South Korea and Australia were in at the beginning of APEC, of course. And if you want to stretch it a bit, they've emphasized our cultural similarities, at least in the sense that we each stand out as being blunter and more direct than the neighbours (laughs) around us. That's what our neighbours complain about. I once worked for a couple of years with a company run by a Korean Australian. It was actually a a space launch company as it happens, but that's another story. And I greatly enjoyed it. It It was a fun place to be around. Anyway, the outcomes of the visit include, as you noted, the growing defence relationship, cooperation on energy and climate change, and Korea's application to join the CPTPP. The problem, I think, is that the visit was not seen in the same way on both sides. Much of the local commentary portrayed it as being very much of the part of the Indo-Pacific rebalancing against China. Scott Morrison spoke about the two countries being like-minded liberal democracies sharing important universal principles regarding the rule of law, the South China Sea, the WTO, and a free and open Indo-Pacific. Moon acknowledged those shared values and interests, but he also made it clear that the situation on the Korean peninsula meant that Seoul was focused on, as he said, the steadfast alliance with the US and also with China. We want to harmonise relationships and we want to maintain such a relationship and we will be putting in the efforts to make this happen. He said specifically in the joint press conference that the state visit I make at this time has nothing to do with our position over China. So, look, it was a reminder that all countries of the Indo-Pacific don't face the same strategic outlook and don't express things in the same way and that the geopolitical situation facing Seoul is very different from Australia's outlook. South Korea is in the middle of or at the beginning stage of presidential elections which President Moon is not recontesting and Australia's election is also imminent. So one way or another the relationship between Morrison and Moon has a has a limited life but the visit certainly showed that there's much more to work with. Yeah, I agree, Alan, with all that. Let me actually expand on a few of the points you made because I had opportunity to study South Korean foreign policy a bit in the context of research into their experience with economic coercion uh, in 2016 and 2017 in a dispute with China over a missile defense system, THAAD. And what I found was a nation that is extremely careful in its foreign policy, at least. You know, they keenly feel their geography. China is right there. North Korea is even closer. And living with that reality really constrains what they feel they're able to do. Alan, we've of course debated a lot in the past how much agency Australia has on the world stage. Well, whatever that is, I would say South Korea has much less. But importantly, this does not mean they are supplicant. They held their ground on the missile defence issue with China. They did not give in to Beijing's primary demand to ditch the system, but they were not loudly defiant either. Instead, they were very disciplined in their messaging and they were doing everything they possibly could behind the scenes to smooth things over. And a political agreement was struck in October of 2017, which is commonly referred to as the three no's, that effectively reset relations. And analysts debate whether it was Seoul or Beijing who ultimately conceded more. 
But it, it is at the very least true that South Korea was willing to make, at least on the surface, some concessions to help seal the deal with this agreement with Beijing. So I think Seoul probably shares similar concerns to Canberra about the deteriorating security environment more broadly in the Indo-Pacific. I imagine they were horrified by Trump, but that right now, if they were forced to compare in a, you know, in a private setting, they would probably assess that China poses a greater threat to the stability in the region than the Biden administration does. But as you highlighted, Alan, both of these are dwarfed by a concern with North Korea, which shapes everything. So even if they did agree with Canberra in that broader sense, this is not going to result in, in bold action. South Korea needs to keep both Beijing and Washington on side and everyone else for that matter with the sort of unique exception of Japan uh, on some issues. And in some ways, as a result, you know, I think South Korea doesn't face the kinds of trade-offs that we see in Australian foreign policy between our economic and security interests because their structural situation sees them define their interests in both much more consistently. I do see more potential for cooperation, but there isn't a deep reserve there of, of untapped potential, I don't think. All right, let's let's move on. For our third item, the Morrison government has decided not to send government officials to the Beijing Winter Olympics this coming February. The United States and Canada will also implement what has been characterised as a diplomatic boycott. New Zealand is also not sending any officials, but they have been less clear as to why, but the primary reason seems to be COVID. In a, in a press conference announcing the boycott, Prime Minister Morrison specifically mentioned human rights abuses in Xinjiang, amongst other sources of disagreement, and the fact that, quote, the Chinese government has consistently not accepted those opportunities for us to meet about these issues, end quote. Defence Minister Peter Dutton separately described the boycott as a statement of common sense and cited the case of Chinese tennis player Peng Shui. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson accused the boycotting governments of using the Olympic platform for political manipulation. As of now, there has been no decision yet by the governments of the EU on whether to follow suit, and that also applies to Japan, though reporting indicates in the Japanese case it does seem likely that Tokyo will at least not send any non-Olympic officials. Alan, do you think a diplomatic boycott can achieve anything? Well, it can be a, a symbol, but it won't have much practical effect. Both sides agree that Australian ministers and officials never intended to attend the Games and that the Chinese hadn't invited them. So although I think this decision not to attend was inevitable, and I don't, I don't personally disagree with it, I'm still a bit perplexed about the way it was announced. Although you mentioned that the PM had made the announcement at a press conference, the conference was actually called to discuss young people's mental health in a Sydney high school, I think. And it just sort of suddenly morphed into an Olympic boycott and there was no separate press release put out about it. I found the language pretty unusual too. Morrison said, in effect, that we were unable to attend the Games because the Chinese weren't speaking to us. And if you think I'm, you know, misinterpreting, let me quote him exactly here. He said, They've been very critical of Australia in our efforts to ensure that we have a strong national defence force, particularly in relation most recently to our decision to acquire nuclear-powered submarines. But, of course, the human rights abuses in Xinjiang and the many other issues that Australia has consistently raised, 
We have been very pleased and very happy to talk to the Chinese government about these issues, and there's been no obstacle to that occurring on our side, but the Chinese government has consistently not accepted those opportunities for us to meet about those issues. So it is not surprising, therefore, that Australian government officials would therefore not be going to China for those games. Australian athletes will, though. Now, look, that's a, that's a really far cry from the White House press secretary's words that the US boycott was a reaction against, quote, the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. And the PM then goes on to speak at greater length about how, quote, I very much separate the issues of sport from those other political issues, which is odd, really, because he's just been doing precisely that. And then he sends off the Aussie athletes with the nation's best wishes. So this is a long way from 1980 when Malcolm Fraser urged a boycott of the Summer Olympics in Moscow because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and left the decision to individual sporting organisations. The result then, which was a, a great disagreement in the Australian community, was that Australian athletes marched under the Olympic flag. The press conference language that he used, I think, was also a recognition that with Brisbane's Summer Games in 2032 coming up fast, they understand that what goes around can come around and that strategically keeping the IOC on side through all this is vital. And in passing, that's a good reminder that nation states aren't the only actors in international relations. So he sent a goodwill shout out to the IOC in doing it. That contorting is all, it's fascinating. Now, let, let me zoom out a bit and focus on, on these boycotts in the context of the Olympics being folded into the case of Peng Shui. And I mentioned her briefly on the last episode. Peng is a, is a Chinese tennis player who accused a former senior, very senior party official of sexual assault, only to disappear from public view and then reappear in what appeared to be sort of clumsily managed efforts by officials to show that she was safe and okay. But of course, her post making the accusation had been censored from Chinese social media. The Women's Tennis Association, the WTA, has come out very strongly in support of her and actually suspended tournaments in China, it seems until further notice. Meanwhile, the Chinese government set up this video call with members of the IOC to try to prove she was okay. But on that call, the IOC official did not ask her about her allegations. A New York Times piece from this week wrote that, quote, Perhaps no international organization has a more symbiotic relationship with Beijing. And it described the financial links between the two and the IOC's insistence on the maintenance of political neutrality as being essential for them to achieve their mission. The problem I see the IOC facing, which is actually also a problem for the Chinese government, is that we're in an environment where political neutrality is becoming increasingly difficult to do, if not impossible. Allegations of sexual assault should, in theory, be politically neutral, but because they were levelled against a former vice premier and a member of the CCP standing committee, they've become politically charged for Beijing, and that kind of makes the issue zero sum. Either you support the right of a victim who claims sexual assault to tell their story and to have those allegations investigated, or you don't. 
you cannot ignore them because they're politically sensitive. They transcend politics. And that truth, I think, is highly inconvenient for the IOC. So I think that the boycott, it helps cement these dynamics, I think, in some way, even though it's brought in the larger issues of, of, of Xinjiang and whatever it was our Prime Minister was trying to say. I think the narrative power of Peng's story in particular and the determination of the WTA to protect her are really central here. I don't expect the boycott you know, will change anything. I don't think it's going to put pressure on Beijing to change its behaviour. But what I do think it helps do, and, and, and the Peng Shui story really cements this, is that it chips away at this aura of strength that China seeks to project on the world stage, which says that because of its economic size and its political power, it's pointless to speak up on politically sensitive issues because that will only bring harm to yourself. Like we want to be, we want to keep politics out of things like sport. So I think this kind of aura operates as an effective wedging strategy where economic interests in particular are used as leverage to divide foreign countries and and organizations like the IOC on these issues. And it's been very successful. Just look at how the IOC has made so many efforts to try to accommodate Beijing. We saw examples of this for the World Health Organization early on as well, where they were not wanting to engage on politically controversial topics. But by using the Olympics and Peng's case to rise the public profile of China's human rights record, I think that will make it easier for others to speak out when they want to, when they when when they see it as necessary to do so. One last point, you know, the 2008 Summer Olympics have been widely seen as a soft power success for China. But I do wonder whether the 2022 Olympics will actually serve to undermine China's soft power. But it really depends on how the Chinese government reacts to the myriad of pressures it's going to face in the weeks ahead. You mentioned earlier, Darren, but we haven't really talked about it, the fact that Australia was, of course, the first country to follow the US in announcing such a boycott. Britain and Canada came later. And the rest of the world, France, New Zealand, Japan, for example, seem for the time being, and you know, you, point, you pointed out that this may change, seem to be prepared to let their actions in not attending speak for themselves. So look, my only point here is to note that from Beijing's point of view, we've demonstrated again quite vividly that American policy and Australian policy towards China are of one piece. But I wonder if that's the case, why Scott Morrison chose that language? Was he being deliberately gentle? Because it was much gentler language. And if so, what was the point of that? A very good question, Alan. On the EU, there is immense pressure from both sides on this issue. And I think the leaders themselves are struggling to work out what to do. I think they're going to make a decision by the end of this month. And my guess is that both the EU and Japan will find a way to fudge it no one will go, um, the officials won't go, but they won't lean into the human rights angle. And uh, Emmanuel Macron, France's president, made some interesting comments on this. He said the boycott would be insignificant. And while I kind of agree with him that it, it will be insignificant in the sense of changing China's behaviour, I don't think that is necessarily true for the rest of the world. But I think what it's happening here is that you know, he and, and is trying to have it both ways. You know, in the same interview, he actually said that France would work with the IOC on a charter to protect Olympic athletes, which I, you know, many read as a a sort of a reference to to Peng Shui's case. But he is not choosing to make an issue of her case in particular. At least I haven't seen any any clear public comments from him. So I just wonder, like, like Morrison, 
everyone's trying to walk a fine line on these issues and it just seems like it's getting harder and harder to do that, but maybe successful here. All right, Al, well, let's wrap up. You mentioned the way the Olympic boycott was announced and earlier you reminded us of the absence of a proper statement of any kind on AUKUS. Are these indicative, do you think, of a shift in in how foreign policy is being articulated to the public? I think they are, Darren. I, I get the sense that people in government, whether politicians or public servants, have believed that everything they know, or at least the main elements of it, is also shared outside. But what strikes me is how much less compared with the past now actually appears on the public record. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. The Obviously, the decline of newspapers, the greatest strain on individual journalists, the competition for space in the papers, the narrow channeling impact of social media. When Stephen Jidgets was on, we talked about the routine dropping of speeches to the media ahead of time, which means they're often delayed in appearing on official websites. And so by the time they uh, they are on there and available to the rest of us to read. The public debate has moved on. The fact that Parliament is used much less frequently as a forum for debate and discussion, as I've said, I think it's extraordinary that the PM hasn't made a statement about AUKUS, which he describes as a fundamental strategic change for Australia to Parliament or even given a public speech. And for whatever reason, we have a foreign minister who delivers far fewer speeches and makes far fewer statements than her predecessor in Julie Bishop's last full year as foreign minister. She gave 80 speeches. Maurice Payne gave 10 in her first full year. Now, again, from the politician's perspective, there are reasons for this. Background briefings of journalists or radio interviews or social media appearances are much less dangerous ways of expressing your views than setting them out clearly and publicly and producing hostages to fortune that might be used against you. But if, like me, you believe that an informed and engaged public is the best way of ensuring that we have a foreign policy and a national security policy that works for our times, then I think the trajectory is heading in the wrong direction. I don't know what you can do about this trend except complain about it, but to bring us back to the beginning, in a democracy, we can enthusiastically do that. So I am. <laughs> Very fair, Alan. Look, in theory, the reduction of speeches could be part of a broader strategy to make ourselves less of a target. I mean, you talked about how social media and, and the news cycle, politicians want to avoid risks associated with those. And you could extrapolate that up into a foreign policy realm. Like when we analysed Shadow Foreign Minister Penny Wong's speech, I talked about the national security minefield. Well, there's obviously a, a foreign policy minefield that governments have to navigate too, especially when it comes to China. So arguably saying less on, for example, China-related issues could be a workable strategy. But as we've discussed many times, this is not the case with the government. Maybe they're saying less, but what they when, when you do when they do say things, it's not like they necessarily represent an uptick in discretion. The boldness is just coming in more concentrated bursts from individual individual ministers. But look, let me make a meta point to finish. You know, as you highlighted, Alan, in a world of the twenty four seven media cycle and 
ubiquitous social media, yeah, if a speech is given in parliament or, or some think tank or university, but it doesn't get picked up by the news cycle, has it ever really happened? You know, for analysts like you and me, Alan, of course it has, and we're literally hanging on every word. But for the Australian public, maybe our friend Stephen Jedgett's summary of the speech that he's making for an ABC broadcast because it was shared with him prior is actually more important in and of itself in the scheme of things than the speech that then follows because that's what the vast majority of public will see, those that are paying attention anyway, and that's what will probably come up first when people Google it in the weeks and months ahead. So it might just be, sort of, as you alluded to, Alan, it's the world we live in now, but that doesn't mean that one can't be cranky and shake their fist <laughs> into the wind about it, Alan. So let our podcast do just that. Let's wrap up today's podcast with our final reading, listening, and watching for the year. Alan, what do you have for us? It's the time of the year to sit and reflect and gaze out at the sea. So it's time, I think, for Oliver Berkman's 4,000 weeks time and how to use it. 4,000 weeks turns out to be a normal human lifetime. And Berkman, who's a British journalist, draws entertainingly and usefully on many different philosophical traditions to reflect on the good life and the importance of understanding that we can't do everything. And I think that's an especially good message for the sort of workaholics who deliver and listen to this podcast. Thank Happy you, Alan. <laughs> Thank you. Well, on that note, I am worn down for sure from a big year. So I haven't been consuming a lot of heavy content lately. So I'm just going to leave everyone with two song recommendations. My current favourite song at the moment is called Good For You by a young woman by the name of Olivia Rodrigo, who is all of 18 years old. She's the latest phenomenon, Alan, in the music industry, if you haven't heard of her. And this song is basically a mix of Taylor Swift and Green Day, two of my favourite acts of all time. So it's a lot of fun. Second, as it's that time of year, I'm going to share with everyone that I am a big fan of Christmas carols. It's basically all I have playing on Spotify for the month of December. And I'm always on the lookout for new and interesting versions by contemporary artists. Most of the time, I'm disappointed. I think it's just hard to, to cover Christmas carols well. And I end up preferring the versions that have been released by the King's College Choir at Cambridge or the Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, Bing Crosby trio. But I have found one lately that is, is, is very cool. Sufjan Stevens, who's kind of an indie folk artist, did his own Christmas album back in the mid-2000s in 2006. And it's mostly not great, but his version of Once in Royal David City is great. So give that a search on Spotify, Sufjan Stevens, Once in Royal David's City, and enjoy. Well, that's a good note on which to say before we go. Have a happy and a safe Christmas, Darren, and the same to all our listeners. Amen. Okay, well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. And for 2021, we thank really, really strongly Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing and his help throughout the year. And of course, also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Happy Christmas. Have a great new year and we'll speak to you in 2022. Cheers. Thank you.